You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 122, Crossing the Delaware. For the last few weeks, I've been building up to Washington's famous crossing of the Delaware River, as portrayed famously in Emanuel Leitze's painting. Despite the hype often given to this famous act, it really is hard to exaggerate just how important this event was to the course of the war. Had Washington not attempted the attack or failed in its execution, there's a very good chance that the Continental Army would have dissolved that winter and the rebellion come to an end. Washington's army had fallen to a few thousand men without adequate food, clothing, or shelter to get through the winter. The British regulars had pushed them back to Philadelphia. The only thing that had kept the regulars from taking Philadelphia that winter was General Howe's decision not to deliver the final blow. A great many of Washington's soldiers had already gone home, and many of those remaining were simply waiting for their enlistments to end at the end of the year. The commonly held view at the time was that if there was still an army in the field to oppose it, the British army would begin its final offensive in the spring, continuing to conquer territory and suppress all armed resistance and talk of independence. It was far from clear that Washington's surprise attack would be successful, or even that it would be a surprise. The combined British and Hessian forces in southern New Jersey probably outnumbered the forces that Washington could put into any attack. Washington had to have considered the precedent a year earlier, when Generals Montgomery and Arnold conducted a similar desperate winter attack against Quebec, leading to Montgomery's death, Arnold's serious injury, and the capture of most of the Northern Army. This is pure speculation on my part but I've often wondered if Washington really thought that he could pull off a victory that night, or whether he just thought it preferable to die in a desperate battle rather than lose the war and surrender. Whatever he really thought about his chances, Washington never expressed any defeatism even to his closest associates. Washington's situation had improved a little bit. Following the capture of General Lee on December 13th, His army in northern New Jersey, which Lee had complained could not make the journey to join up with Washington, seemed to have no problems making that march without their commander. General Horatio Gates had also led regiments from Fort Ticonderoga to join Washington. In addition, the Pennsylvania Associators, which were militia, also assembled to provide support. So by December 22nd, Washington reported that the men under his command numbered over 11,000, though only about half of those were ready for combat. The other half of his army remained on the sick rolls. Lack of adequate winter clothing and shoes, as well as inadequate food, contributed largely to the numbers of sick. 
Even so, his effective fighting force of just over 6,000 gave him a slight numerical advantage over the British and Hessian outposts along southern New Jersey, or as it was called at the time, West Jersey. That same day, December 22nd, Colonel Joseph Reed sent a letter to Washington saying that his spies had seen little activity between the scattered and isolated British outposts, and that Colonel Griffin's force of 600 militiamen had engaged von Donop's Hessians at Mount Holly, and that the men were in high spirits. Reed's letter continued by recommending that Washington either send more troops to reinforce Colonel Griffin, or use the opportunity to make a major attack on another isolated outpost. Reed thought the latter a better choice. He stressed his recommendation by saying, I will not disguise my own sentiments that our cause is desperate and hopeless if we do not take the opportunity of the collection of troops at present and strike some stroke. Our affairs are hasting fast to ruin if we do not retrieve them by some happy event. Delay with us is now equal to total defeat. Be not deceived, my dear general, with the small flattering appearances. We must not suffer ourselves to be lulled into security and inaction because the enemy does not cross the river. It is but a reprieve. The execution is the more certain, for I am very clear that they can and will cross the river in spite of any opposition we can give them. Now remember, Colonel Reed and Washington had a strained relationship at the time because Washington recently learned of Reed's letter to General Lee criticizing Washington for his indecision in battles during the New York campaign. So Reed ended his letter asking pardon for his impertinence in recommending a strategy to his commander, but again stressed the desperate circumstances. Pardon the freedom I have used, the love of country, a wife and four children in the enemy's hands, the respect and attachment I have to you, the ruin and poverty that must attend me and thousands of others will plead my excuse for such freedom. A courier brought Reed's letter to Washington that same day. Within hours, Washington convened a council of war with his most senior officers to discuss their options. Washington submitted the proposal to cross the Delaware and attack the Hessian outpost as Colonel Reed's, not his own. He wanted his generals to speak openly before he presented his own views. And I don't mean to suggest here that Reed's letter is what caused Washington to launch the attack on Trenton. Washington had, in fact, been planning for some sort of attack for several weeks, moving men, ships, and supplies around in anticipation of some sort of counterstrike. But at this point, he did want to get the views of his other top officers before revealing his own. Everyone seemed to agree that an attack was the best option. Even if it was risky, the consensus that doing nothing would lead to almost certain dissolution of the army meant that such a risk was justified. The council then turned to the tougher question of how this would be done. With Colonel von Dunop's force of 3,000 Hessians in Mount Holly facing Colonel Griffith's 600 Americans, the smaller outpost at Trenton was isolated. Von Dunham had been stationed at Bordentown, only about five miles from Trenton. His current location at Mount Holly was about 20 miles away from Trenton, more than a day's march given the weather. Support from the outpost at Princeton 
was 14 miles from Trenton and had fewer troops to deploy. The 1,400 Hessians isolated at the Trenton outpost became the target of the continental attack. Once again, Washington relied on Colonel John Glover's Marblehead Regiment to get his army across the river. Colonel Glover and his men had been invaluable in moving the army across the rivers around New York. His New England mariners would once again use their experience to move an army across the Delaware River at night. The next day, December 23rd, Washington sent out his orders to senior officers for the planned attack on the night of December 25th. Surprise was a key element of the attack. Washington instructed his senior officers not to reveal the plan to the rank and file. Surprise, though, was out of the question. The British had numerous spies at top levels of the Continental Army. Shortly after American officers learned of the planned attack, an express rider took off for Brunswick, New Jersey, to inform British General James Grant. After learning of the American plans, Grant sent another express rider back to Trenton to inform the local commander, Colonel Johann Rahl, of the planned attack. Rahl received this intelligence on the evening of December 25th. The intelligence was vague, but it told Rahl to be on alert for a possible attack. Washington had long had a penchant for drawing up hopelessly complex plans of attack, and this attack was no exception. Washington divided his forces into three separate divisions. Washington, with his main force, would cross the Delaware with the largest force of about 2,400 soldiers at a small town with the amazingly coincidental name of Washington's Crossing, about 10 miles north of Trenton. Okay, the area got the name after the fact. At the time, it was known as McConkie's Ferry. His force would also make use of Johnson's Ferry a short distance upstream from McConkie's. A second force of 1,200 men under the command of Pennsylvania Militia General James Ewing would cross at Trenton Ferry, just south of town. Although Ewing was a militia officer, he had decades of experience. He was actually an alumnus of the Braddock Expedition, along with Washington, from way back in 1755. Ewing's mission was to capture and hold the bridge just south of Trenton to prevent any Hessian retreat as Washington's forces attacked from the north. A third force, under the command of Colonel John Cadwallader, with 1,200 Philadelphia Associators, and Colonel Daniel Hitchcock, with 600 Continentals, would cross about 12 miles south of Trenton, from Bristol, Pennsylvania, into Burlington, New Jersey, the current location of the Burlington-Bristol Bridge. Of course, there was no bridge at the time. The men would have to cross on boats. Their mission was to attack Colonel von Dunnop's Hessians and Colonel Sterling's Highlanders, possibly joining up with Colonel Griffin's 600 militia who had already engaged von Dunnop at Mount Holly. Although the enemy outnumbered the Patriot attackers here, they were mostly to act as a diversion to prevent Sterling or von Dunnop from marching to rescue the forces at Trenton. As Washington put it in his orders to Cadwallader, if you can do nothing real, at least create as great a diversion as possible. General Israel Putnam also planned to make a fourth crossing even further south, moving several hundred Philadelphia militia to attack and distract the enemy at Mount Holly from the south. 
Putnam's attempted crossing, however, was considered the most difficult and not considered critical to the Trenton attack. The plan was for each of these separate crossings to take place at night and then have all of them reach their targets at the same time in the morning in order to surprise the enemy. This seemed like a tall order. Washington was dividing his forces in the face of the enemy and simply counting on nobody having any problems keeping to the planned schedule. In truth, though, Washington had little choice. There was no way he could get all these forces across the river at one location in one night. Crossing the river in small boats, loading and unloading men and equipment took considerable time. It probably would have taken at least two or three days to effect a crossing of all these forces from one location. Dividing his forces was not so much a tactical choice as it was a necessity. Washington spent Christmas Eve moving his forces into position for deployment the following night. The crossing would take place on the night of December 25-26, with the attack on Trenton scheduled for dawn on December 26th. There's a famous story of Dr. Benjamin Rush, who was a member of the Continental Congress from Pennsylvania, visiting Washington on Christmas Eve. They spoke as Washington wrote out the following day's password on small slips of paper. Rush picked up one after it fell to the floor and noticed that the password was victory or death. On December 25th, each soldier received three days' rations and 60 rounds of ammunition. Though they still did not know their mission, everyone knew something was coming. Almost immediately, things began to go wrong. Washington had planned for all of his forces to be in place by dusk on the 25th, so that immediately after dark, just before 5 p.m., they could move down to the bank and begin crossing. The entire army had to be across the river by midnight so that they could march the 10 miles to Trenton before dawn. By dusk, though, most of the troops had not arrived at their embarkation points. With everything so tightly scheduled, even a short delay meant that they would arrive in Trenton after dawn. With that, they would lose the element of surprise. As Washington was trying to deal with his delays, a messenger delivered a dispatch from General Gates. Now that General Lee was a prisoner of war, Gates was the ranking general officer with real combat experience as an officer in the regular army before the war started. You may recall from episode 118 that Gates had been conspiring with Lee to oust Washington just before the British captured Lee. Now, Gates seemed to be abandoning Washington entirely. Washington had asked Gates to oversee the crossing at Trenton. Gates begged off, saying that he was too sick to command the crossing and that he was headed for Philadelphia. Washington asked him to at least check on the crossing at Bristol on his way to Philadelphia but again, Gates claimed he was too sick and had to go straight to Philadelphia. Now Washington learned that the sick General Gates was riding a hundred miles to the Continental Congress in Baltimore, where he would try to get Congress to order Washington to cancel his attack and pull back the army to Maryland, where he could protect the Congress at Baltimore. Gates was essentially calling Washington a complete failure and saying that they needed to give up any defense of Philadelphia because of his failures. The obvious next step seemed to be to remove Washington 
and give command of the army to someone else. Maybe General Gates. Upon reading Gates's message, Washington apparently lost his temper for a moment, something that was extremely rare, but almost immediately he composed himself. Right now, he had a desperate battle to fight. He would have to worry about his top general stabbing him in the back later. Washington's more immediate problem was the weather. Just after dark, a light drizzle began to fall. Very quickly, it turned into a driving combination of rain, sleet, and snow, soaking his army and causing them to freeze. Ice flows in the river made the crossing almost impossible. The river had not frozen solid enough for the army to walk across, but large chunks of ice made the use of boats extremely hazardous as well. Further downriver, the ice situation became even worse. General Ewing's planned crossing just below the Trenton Falls never even started. The ice jam prevented any chance of a passage. Ewing's men did not even get into their boats, but simply turned back and gave up. At the Bristol crossing, a similar problem with ice flows made crossing impossible as well. General Cadwallader marched his men six miles further south to Dunk's Ferry, where they thought they might have a better chance. The boats were able to make it about 150 feet from the Jersey shore when they hit solid ice. The soldiers were able to get out and walk over the ice, but could not land their cannon or other heavy equipment. Later attempts to cross found the conditions even worse. After several hours, only about one-third of the force had crossed, and none of the cannons or horses. Colonels Cadwallader and Hitchcock decided to call off the attempt and bring the soldiers back to the Pennsylvania side. But the 600 or so soldiers who had already crossed were upset, not only that the rest could not make it, but that they were now required to make the perilous return trip. Many of the men debated continuing the attack without their leaders. But after some discussion, they decided that if none of the other divisions had crossed the river either, they would only be taken prisoner. Reluctantly, the troops returned to the Pennsylvania side by dawn, cold, wet, and miserable over the failure of the mission. Although Washington was not yet aware of these failures, he was dealing with his own problems. His soldiers were crossing, but the late start and the weather were destroying his time schedule. Most of the army came over in Durham boats. These were large, high-walled, flat-bottom boats built for the Durham Iron Works to ship iron downriver to Philadelphia. They looked like really large canoes, about 30 to 60 feet long. These boats were very stable and could carry lots of weight. The army filled the boats with soldiers, standing for the entire trip in order to cram as many as possible into each crossing. Also, since the boats had no seats, sitting down would have meant sitting in a puddle of ice water in the bottom of the boats. Although the Durham boats were large enough to handle heavy equipment, getting horses or cannons into the boats over the high walls would have been difficult. Instead, the army used the ferries to move cannon and horses across the river. The river was a little narrower for Washington than for the divisions trying to pass further downriver. The crossing was about 800 feet, which a swift current and floating chunks of ice hitting the boats made very difficult. 
the men were forced to jump up and down in the boats to keep ice from forming along the sides of the boats. Although there was a bright moon that night, storm clouds kept the night dark, making the passage even more difficult. Joining Glover's New Englanders were men who had grown up on ships and docks. These experienced sailors tested their limits that night against tough conditions. The fact that most of the soldiers could not swim made their passage over the river even more perilous. Of course, falling in might mean you would freeze to death even if you did know how to swim and didn't drown. Eventually, Washington's forces made it across the river. His men built small fires along the banks in an attempt to keep warm. Washington ordered pickets to cover all roads for several miles, capturing anyone found on the roads at night in order to prevent anyone from warning the Hessians. But it seemed clear that they could no longer surprise the enemy. By the time they were ready to march, it was 4 a.m. That meant they would not arrive in Trenton until long after daylight. They would not be able to surprise the Hessians, and they would have no other support from the other divisions that failed to cross. It's not exactly clear when Washington learned that the other crossings were complete failures and that his force was on its own. Not that it probably would have mattered. Washington's password of victory or death was not simply an aphorism. He was going to succeed that night or die trying. Turning back, even with the odds against him, was not an option. Next week, Washington marches his men to Trenton to do battle with the enemy. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. This week, I want to thank our Robert Morris Circle supporter on Patreon, Mark Vanderberg, who runs Colonial Theater on the air. His site is colonialradio.com. The Robert Morris Circle is the highest level, named after the financier of the revolution. Anyone can help support the show on Patreon for as little as $2 a month. Just look up the American Revolution podcast on patreon.com. Mark's company produces audio works, 
on a wide variety of topics, including a great many historical fiction dramas. I've mentioned the show Ticonderoga, which is set in the French and Indian War. The story takes place during the same events that I covered in the first few episodes of this podcast. You can get Ticonderoga or any of their other audio works. They're available on Audible or Apple Music, or you can go old school and buy the CDs on Amazon. You can learn more about any of these options at their website, colonialradio.com. You can also find a link to their site and the sites of my other Patreon supporters at my website, amrevpodcast.com. Before I get to this week's summary, I wanted to make a couple quick corrections. It's brought to my attention that last week I referred to Asinkunk Creek. The correct pronunciation, I am told, is Asiskunk Creek. Also, at one point when I was talking about David Head's new book, I mistakenly referred to him as David Price. David Price is, of course, the author of several other really good Revolutionary War books, but not to be confused with Revolutionary War author David Head. A good way to remember the distinction is probably that cutting prices is not a bad thing. Cutting off heads usually is. Thanks to listener Roger Williams for those corrections. This week, General Washington crosses the Delaware. After months of retreats and withdrawals, the Americans are finally going back on the offensive. As I said last week, this is really a defining moment for General Washington. He might have been remembered as the obscure leader of a minor failed rebellion, rather than the founder of a nation, but for his decision on this day. For Washington, I think this was really done out of pure desperation. It was a long-shot move that paid off but many officers might not have tried it. General Horatio Gates ran away to Congress rather than participate in what he must have guessed was going to be a terrible failure. Remarkably, Gates would not suffer as a result of his decision to abandon the army and his commander in their moment of need. Gates would receive a new command the following year at Saratoga, and he would have several more opportunities to prove himself the absolute weasel that he was over the course of the war. As you may infer, I am not a particular fan. For General Washington, though, as I said, failure was not an option this night. No matter how many things went wrong, he was going to go forward and complete this mission. I really think that Washington thought there was a good chance that he would not live through the next day. Yet he went forward with his plans anyway, and as we'll see next week, leading a column of soldiers into combat. For other leaders that night, though, failure was an option. The crossings led by Generals Ewing, Cadwallader, and Putnam all failed, leaving the force led by Washington all on its own, with less than half the number of soldiers that Washington initially planned to have participating in this event. Now, I don't want to leave you with the impression that these other generals and their men were not as brave or determined as Washington. They really did have much harder crossings further downstream. The Delaware River, where Washington crossed above Trenton Falls, is a very different river from below the falls. The crossings downstream were over a much wider river and a much slower moving river, which meant more ice. Washington also had the advantage of the Durham boats, 
which were much heavier duty and were capable of breaking through ice. The other crossings did not have these kinds of boats. So, as impressive as Washington's crossing really was, that doesn't mean we need to disparage the other failures. The only guy I'm disparaging today is General Gates, who did not even try, and who actually went behind Washington's back to Congress at this time. The book I want to recommend this week is one of my all-time favorite books about the American Revolution. It is Washington's Crossing by David Hackett Fisher. I just gave you a little over 20 minutes talking about the crossing, but Fisher spends over 200 pages giving lots of great detail about the crossing, and then another more than 200 pages on the battles of Trenton and Princeton that I will be discussing over the coming weeks. This 2004 book is a serious, in-depth, detail-filled read that will also keep your attention and interest as the story unfolds. I think it's a masterful book, but you don't have to take my word for it. The book also won a Pulitzer Prize for history. Fisher, I believe, still teaches at Brandeis University, where he has written many great books and has been teaching for over 50 years. Another book that I probably should have recommended, although I don't think I was doing book recommendations at the time, was his book on Paul Revere's Ride. Fisher's book on Washington's Crossing, however, is my favorite. My online recommendation this week is the website for Washington's Crossing State Park. The site has some local history and detailed information about the crossing. I'm lucky enough to live about an hour away, and I'm able to take advantage of some of the live events that take place there. They do an annual reenactment of the crossing, though I've never made it to one of those. For some reason, my wife thinks that Christmas Day is a time to be home with the family, not out at some reenactment. One of these years I'm going to convince her. But I digress. If you want to learn more about Washington's Crossing and some of the local history surrounding it, go to the site washingtonscrossingpark.org. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.